Friends, welcome to another episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. You know, Ryan closed, I think it was the 1045 service, with this amazing quote I'd love to tee up for you. He said, The gospel of Jesus is not the good news that you became a Christian and that you then come to church and are bored out of your socks every day for the rest of your life. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of the supernatural, unending, eternal goodness of God being poured into every fiber of your being to work on your behalf and on the behalf of those that God has entrusted to your care. I think it's a powerful summation of the gospel through the lens of this week's central theme. Our conversation centers around the topic of healing. And I know that's controversial, on both sides of the aisle in a lot of different ways. So we explore that in this week's conversation and we reflect on how faith, doubt, and cynicism may be impacting our view of who God is and what he's capable of doing in our lives and our community. For fun, we also discuss why it might be that public speaking is the number one greatest fear in America. As always, our hope is that this week's conversation inspires you, stretches you, and encourages you towards greater curiosity, a deeper heart and hunger for the scriptures, a more fervent commitment to prayer, and the cultivation of a faith that is eager to join in God's relentless work of healing each human heart as well as the world's. Now, friends, I hope that this week's conversation is a good one for you. now brown cow <laughs> is that the opening <laughs> uh, did you did you ever see anchorman yeah dude i don't remember that line oh That's... come on how <laughs> now brown cow <clears throat> oh he's getting ready the arsonists have oddly shaped feet the human <laughs> torch was denied a bank loan <laughs> man there's so many things the human mind is such a mystery there's so many things I'm like, the things why? that choose to get saved and yes. don't get saved. It's like, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can almost, that's a nice segue into Mark because you got to wonder like how, what got saved in that guy's brain? Like, it's oh. funny that, you know, how much he would have experienced and, but his mind couldn't remember at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just trust the Holy Spirit brought to mind the things that needed to be said. Well, let's find out if he'll be faithful yet again. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Let's find out. Uh, all right, Ryan. It's Monday. After you took a, a kind of a leap of faith in lots of ways, uh, I heard tell that Nick Gilmore has given you another nickname, which is a Roll the Dice Pfeiffer. Indeed. Indeed. My, my legal initials are R-D-P. So he, Roll being the, the witty man that he is. Gosh. Yeah. Sometimes that guy just astounds me. The wit yeah. is just staggering. <laughs> um, so you roll the dice on a couple of ways this weekend. And one is, I'd say the topic that you, or the theme that you, you asked us to focus on that the text does too, which is faith healings. And in our day and age, that can be a fraught or contentious, you know, a divisive controversial space. You know, we live in a place, uh, not just in North County, there's lots of alternative medicine, but there's also a massive part of the medical establishment is, you know, here we've got scripts, we've got research institutes and everything. So the concept of faith healing is 
it just a lot of people avoid it, man, mm-hmm. or they or they treat it really superficially and you didn't do that. But that would probably wasn't even the most uh, bold or risky things that you did. You just invited people up onto the stage to share some of their experiences with faith healings. So where did the boldness for this weekend uh, to do that in particular, but also just the kind of pastoral sensibility to focus in on that theme of of healing. Where'd that come from? Well, one, the, the, the really the core purpose, the driving purpose of the passage or the message was to highlight how Jesus was demonstrating the gospel, hmm. yeah, a holistic healing. And I think when we think of the gospel, we think of healing for our souls. Yeah. But what Jesus is constantly giving example to is that his salvation is a holistic salvation for our bodies, our minds, and our souls, our relationships. And I think that extends into the new creation. We're going to have new bodies. We're mm-hmm. going to, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, God loves to heal. It's just a part of the whole picture. But I thought, I think the physical healings are a wonderful, beautiful picture of the, 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 the core and fundamental healing that Jesus needs to do in our life, which mm-hmm. is the healing of our spirits, the healing of our life from sin and the restoring of relationship with God. Um, what I loved about the, or the reason why I went into the inviting people to come up there and what inspired me to do that one was, I just remembered a couple of weeks ago that people, a lot of people raised their hand that they had experienced a healing. And someone told me after service that after raising their hand, someone came to them and asked them to share their story of healing and that they had never heard a story of healing. Come on. And I was like, Oh, what a cool idea. I told the Lord, Lord, if I get another chance, I want to invite people to share their stories so that others can hear these stories. Secondly, what a great illustration of what Jesus himself did. I mean, in a way we were just reliving the passage. We were just reliving the moment where Jesus invited this woman to come out and share a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all got a feeling of what that might've been like. And wow, that, you know, depending on which service you went to, we had two mothers and then a gentleman come up and share their stories about one was a healing, one was a resurrection. And uh, the other guy, I think, was a healing of paralysis and a resurrection of his girlfriend, who I think she was a girlfriend who was dead in a car mm-hmm. accident. I mean, they're just dramatic stories. And I think it's good for us to remember that these dramatic moments are not just something God did 2000 years mm-hmm. ago, but he continues to do them. Um, I've learned how to invite people up to share. So if you noticed, I won't give up the mic because <laughs> uh, once a person gets the mic, you never know. They go into a trance, you know, you just lose track of time. And so the oh, mic yeah. kind of helps keep people grounded. Yep. And, uh, it, I think it helps them not get kind of caught up in the moment and the story and lose track of what we're trying to accomplish with the sermon itself. It's not so. I, and I think it worked, it worked out well. Mm-hmm. People were really respectful and understood what we were trying to do. Yeah. My, my production brain was very grateful to you that you didn't let go of the mic. <laughs> when I saw that you were doing that, I was like, oh, please Lord yeah. help him hold on to the mic. But I gotta tell you, I'm really impressed with the people that shared. I mean, I just, if they're listening, if you're listening to this podcast or if you know them, I, I we are just so how grateful Mm-hmm. Should we be, do, do we need to be, gosh, this, that they would get up in front of a room like that. You know, public speaking is the number one fear mm. in our country and that they would get up and share their story so vulnerably, so personally. Um, it brought the passage to life and it brings the present 
power and presence of Christ to life, to all mm-hmm. of us. Well, it was, it was a courageous move on their part and I applaud their courage mm. and faith. Public speaking is the number one fear. That's right. Over spiders, over death itself. I think it's because death is not so realistic to many of us. Like, ah, I'm not going to die. Right. Right. I think the average person, unless they're facing a terminal illness or we're in a very dangerous line of work, mm-hmm. I don't really think about death. And I, so I think public speaking feels more like a more imminent threat. <laughs> yeah. We've pushed death to the margins in lots of ways. The only, only the most regular way that we engage with it is through whatever entertainment media that we consume. Which is really different in Mexican culture. We create a whole holiday around Dia de los Muertos. Dia de los Muertos. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Did you? I assume you saw Coco. Pixar of course, film? of course. Oh. And Dude, everyone I, tells me the main character looks like my wife. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, Someone was oh just telling goodness. her she needs to dress up like her for Christmas. It won't be hard. For a dude, harvest party. <laughs> yeah, she that's can do right. For, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. Or I. Yeah, I was I was really grateful and impressed by the people who got up and shared. Uh, that's not something that obviously we do regularly on a weekend service. And so I just was impressed by the courage that I saw. And, you know, when I think about it a little bit more, I'm not surprised to hear that public speaking is something that's so terrifying for people, because regardless of what it, it what we're talking about, it is uh, you're very exposed all attention is on you. And so any potential flaw you have, um, it can be exposed. Or if you fail, you feel very vulnerable to judgment. That's right. So now that's, I think, a segue because some of the spaces that I want us to dive a little bit deeper into this story and to hear you unpack a little bit more um, are the response to maybe even the sharing. I can imagine some people had a response like we did one of gratitude or of admiration. Like, Oh my gosh, that's so like, my faith is really encouraged or wow. Those people are so bold to do that. I know in, in a church, our size, there's gotta also be people who responded, um, not with awe or wonder, but with a spirit of cynicism or Mm. of doubt or of woundedness, because as we were talking about before we started recording, this is the area of faith healing, it's on a different category than, uh, than the, the nature miracles. Let's say it's also in a different category from the, you know, the exorcism. There's something about physical healings that touches a really intimate place in us because we've all been ill. We've all experienced the fragility of that. We've all lost people um, in, to death, to sickness. And so it just, man, it, it 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 goes straight to the heart of the matter in a lot of ways. And to protect those sensitive places in us, I think we oftentimes respond out of doubt and cynicism. And there's a, a quote I wanted to read, which is from, actually, this is a plug, it's from out of Jeff Rinke's new book called Badly Broken, Deeply Loved, How to Find God's Healing, book Wholeness, plug. and Peace. Book plug. I was not paid for that. <laughs> but in it, he quotes A.W. Tozer, a classic Christian author, and says... What makes the cynical spirit particularly dangerous is that the cynic is usually right. His analysis is accurate, his judgment sound. He can prove he is right in his moral views. Yet for all that, he is wrong, rightfully, pathetically wrong. But because he is right, he never suspects how tragically wrong he is. He slides imperceptibly into a chronic condition of bitterness and comes at last to accept it as normal. And Mm. I think that, I mean, 
I definitely know for years I was utterly skeptical of God's healing power Mm. for anything other than my soul. And so I just, I wanted to hear you engage with that topic a little bit deeper because it's not something that you spent as much time exploring in this sermon. I know you've talked about it in the past, but yeah, talk to me about doubt, disappointment, cynicism. That's such an important theme and we see it even germane to the passage. The woman's been bleeding for 12 years. She's gone to the doctors and and she's a woman of faith. She's, she's a Jewish woman. She, she would have been praying to God. There's no doubt about that. And 12 years, that's a long time to carry a suffering. And why then? Why that moment? The timing of things is this beyond our understanding. But the passage captures that, um, that the, the suffering that comes with healing that doesn't come mm. quickly or in the time that we hope or um, in some cases at all physically um, or with Jairus and her daughter dying in that journey home. That, that extended period of time where he was in the, in the interim period between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, which for some of us, that interim period is a, is a lifetime mm. where we have lost loved ones who will, we will not see raised up like her until Jesus returns in the new kingdom. Um, that's certainly the kind of death that the early Christians were facing and would have seen her resurrection as an encouragement that as they go to the Colosseum to die we will be raised up in the, in the resurrection with Christ. Right? It does capture those doubts. And I just want to say, number one, that I relate to those doubts and I relate to the disappointment and the sadness. I have people in my life who I've prayed for who have not been healed. I have people who I've prayed for earnestly fasting, just agonizing, just crying out to God who died. And I have pains in my body that were, actually I'll say, were legitimately supernaturally healed only to return a few years later, mm. which I kind of reminds me of what something I said in the message that eventually all these people that were healed or raised from the dead, eventually they all did die. Mm. Something did come back, some sickness or something came back and took their life. But what Jesus was bringing was even bigger than that. As big as that is, how as, as sort of like, this is it. There's, you raise a girl from the dead. There's nothing bigger. Jesus actually came to do something even more significant. Mm-hmm. And that was to offer us eternal life. And, but I, nonetheless, back to the, the doubt and the dissolute and the disappointment. Um, yeah, I, I think that the passage invites us to have faith in the waiting mm-hmm. and the waiting of number one, the waiting, um, to have understanding about why God allowed something to happen in our life. Sometimes there's a waiting, there's a pain in not understanding why something happened. Um, I think number two, um, there's this the disappointment and, and the feeling of rejection that God has answered some prayers and that could have happened this last weekend. They're hearing amazing stories, but then maybe someone's going, but why didn't that happen for me? Why did my child die? Mm-hmm. And I think that can bring up and stir the pot of suffering all over again and heartache. Mm-hmm. And I think what the gospels are constantly trying to speak to is that even in that pain, even that heartache right there, there's healing from Christ in that place. And the healing isn't in Jesus going back and rewinding time and doing it differently. So the person didn't die or we didn't lose that. We didn't go through that suffering, but that that suffering, that death is not the final truth or reality 
for our life mm. and that Jesus is going to come again. And this side of heaven, we will not see the full outpouring of God's goodness until he returns. And we're in the already here and not yet. And there is the tension we live with. And um, I just want to say to anybody who has lost somebody and that hearing that message has stirred up that pain that I'm so sorry. Mm. And I'm sorry for the loss, the grief and the sadness and the disappointment. But I think that disappointment and that grief, even if it's stirred up, maybe that's what God wanted to do was stirred up to allow you to invite him once again to come and comfort and heal and renew you even in that place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be a powerful doubt, disappointment, cynicism can be powerful invitations to faith if we let them. Um, and I know for, I, I mean, I know for me personally, that's, that's part of my own story as well is that, um, for a long time, I was afraid because, because there was hurt or disappointment and I was afraid to open that wound back up and re-examine it. And so I developed kind of a cynical outlook on a lot of, a lot of the world, a lot of life and particularly God. And it wasn't until somebody, uh, actually it was, it was Nick Gilmore really, you know, within the context of a trusted relationship, uh, saw, he saw that in me and invited me to re-examine it and invited me lovingly, never, you know, didn't shame me with it, but lovingly invited me to reconsider my cynicism or my doubt as an invitation to become curious about how do I really view God? If I, if I'm not willing to open myself up here, if I'm not willing to have faith that he could heal me, um, what does that say about my belief in God? And it was really crucial in my own healing journey um, because I hadn't, nobody had ever held that mirror up to me, mm. you know? So I'm, I just appreciate the way that you framed that because one thing that I was concerned about in some ways, I just felt it almost in my body when I saw which direction you were going with this passage was, uh, you know, it's a number of different stories that came to mind of, of people who I, I believe are, you know, they're, I believe they're earnest or genuine in their love of Jesus or in their faith, but their response to people's grief, pain, loss, death, suffering has been, oh man, it's been really insensitive because they leap so quickly. They just really downplay the pain and they leap so quickly to almost this like, well, you just, you need to have faith and just trust that God was, you know, God's, God's got it. So I don't hear you saying that. No, it's certainly not. And, you know, and I haven't experienced that. The people that, I mean, this is, you're talking about personal experience. The people that have been in my life who've been the most like passionate believers and practitioners of praying for healing have also been the most compassionate people. I, I've never personally experienced someone kind of bulldozing their, their belief over me or minimizing the grief or the heartache. Mm. And, um, I think what's also powerful about this passage is when it comes to the dig, the, that even in caring suffering, even in those seasons of life where our pain is not healed, where the, where we have to carry sustained grief for the loss, for a loss, 
in the pain and in the grief, in the suffering, there is a tremendous glorifying of Christ. What you see in the passage is Jesus is the suffering servant. I alluded to in Isaiah 53, the way that he, he glorified his father by carrying suffering by, it says in Isaiah, he was familiar with suffering. Uh, I think of Matthew's Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, mm-hmm. blessed are those who hunger. Those don't, none of those feel good. And I think in carrying suffering and grief and yet continuing to put our trust in God and to hope in him, even in the face of cynicism that says, if God is real, then he won't allow us to go through hardship. He would resolve this immediately. That contradicts the message of the cross. It contradicts the life of Christ who glorified his father by humbling himself and becoming a person who was marked by one who carried suffering his entire ministry. Mm. His ministry wasn't a triumphal, uh, triumphalistic ministry. It was a ministry that didn't just come and snap his fingers and heal people. It was a person who came in and, and carried their sorrows alongside them. And I think that's evidenced in the way that Jesus sat with the woman, listened to her pain, or walked literally alongside a father um, as he just battled fear about the news of his daughter. Um, I think there's something dignifying and glorifying to God when we do carry grief and sorrow and pain and continue in that pain, in that grief, even in the sadness, we continue to point and put it to Christ and put our hope in him Mm -hmm. because that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't show up, flex his muscles and blow out the devil. He came and he died. And I think there's, I think that's just an amazing savior to me that this woman after 12 years of suffering is a woman that Jesus holds up as someone for us to look at because of her faith, Mm. because in her suffering, a faith was produced. And I think that's incredible. And I think that's the invitation for us that in our suffering, in our, even the suffering of disappointment, why didn't things go differently, Lord, when I prayed for that person? That's a suffering that there is an invitation to faith for us in those disappointments that that even more has the power to glorify Christ. Mm -hmm. So why is it that you think that we don't, um, we don't see more healing in our culture or in the church. Yeah. I think number one, theologically um, by more, it's hard. It's a relative statement more in comparison to what do you mean? Like the early church or what we, what appears to be happening in Jesus's ministry. Why doesn't it Mm. feel normative? So maybe I'll, that's, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're ever going to see it normative. Um, and that's where the temptation is. If it's not normative, then why even bother? And I think that's just, well, I think because Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and pray for healing and we should continue in the book of James. We see that people were instructed to bring their sickness to the elders and to be anointed and be prayed for. I think it's a part of glorifying Christ. Uh, not everybody we share the gospel with will come to faith, mm. but we're nonetheless commissioned to go and share our gospel or the gospel of Christ with people. Um, but why is it, why don't we see it more often? And why isn't it normative? Number one, this side of heaven, it's not going to be normative. I just think this side of heaven, we're not going to see that because 
Um, we're waiting still for Christ to return and release the full power of his presence on the earth and uh, to move in, so to speak. We're engaged, but he hasn't moved mm-hmm. in. Number two, I think there's an ebb and flow of healing power from Jesus. And we're going to see that next week with, when he goes to his hometown. Specifically, Mark goes out of his way to highlight the fact that he could only do a few miracles. Mm. He could only heal a few people. I mean, for Jesus, that was a bad day. For some of us, that would be like the event of a lifetime, yeah. you know? But Mark is not afraid, and we shouldn't be afraid of, of, of one of the second reasons we don't is because we lack faith. Now, mm-hmm. the immediate temptation is to go fall into the, the, the name it and claim it mindset and think that every instance where someone isn't healed is because we lack faith, and mm-hmm. that's not true. Mm-hmm. Any more than every instance of sin is a, or sickness or every instance of a problem in our life is a result of some sin in our life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in Jesus's ministry, someone's sickness is a result of sin. Sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes someone's problem is a demonic spirit. Sometimes it's not. There's no formula here. But we can't escape the fact that sometimes we don't see more healings because we just lack faith. Just like, why didn't we see people here healed of polio um, many years ago, because we didn't have the technology. We didn't have the scientific knowledge. But um, as humanity matured in its knowledge of medicine and science, they were able to bring medication and healing to things that they didn't have before. Hmm. Uh, I think the same is true for us spiritually. There are things that we don't have faith for at one season in our life that maybe later we do. There are also environments in which there is an atmosphere of faith for something. And it's not just about our faith alone, but it's about the collective faith of the community. Mm. Uh, And I've seen that in other forms. When I first started sharing the gospel at UCSD with students, we had like maybe one student at most a year come to faith. But as we normalize giving calls to faith and creating opportunities for people to come to faith and shared stories, testimonies of people coming to faith, it started to become normal. It went from one a year to... It was rare to have a week where we didn't have at least a handful of people coming to faith. Mm. Rare. I know that's a case of it being normative. Um, So maybe I'm arguing against myself. (laughs) But the point was, what changed? Mm -hmm. Were students all of a sudden more spiritually receptive? Was it a new generation of spiritually receptive students? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think is that we were giving more opportunity. I think we were just giving more opportunity for God to work. And I think when we don't have faith, we don't give God the opportunity. And uh, in soccer, there's a phrase that you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take as a striker. If you don't take the shot on the goal because you're afraid of missing and looking stupid, you're never going to make any goals. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably true when it comes to praying for healing. If you never pray for healing, you're probably not going to see any healings. Well, it's definitely true. I think that's actually a quote from Wayne Gretzky. Nice. Come on, Wayne, let's go back to the Kings, the LA Kings, back to, was that the 90s? <laughs> Greatest um, goal scorer of NHL history. But then I think the third reason why maybe we don't see uh, more healing in a situation is maybe there's, we could, uh, maybe we're just, it's not so much that we don't have faith, but let's put it in the opposite. Our faith is redirected. Mm-hmm. Our faith is more redirected to other possible solutions. So one reason why we see more healings in the world countries is because there is a desperation that we see in this passage and there aren't alternatives for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I was talking to a guy from Nepal and he, when they, they send people out 
to do evangelism, they send them out not first to proclaim the name of Jesus, but they send them out to do healings, to pray for people to be healed. Hmm. He's one of our missionary partners. And he goes, Shem, so, yeah. you're doing this every day? He's like, every day we're sending people out to pray for people to be healed. And do people get healed? And he's like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I go, every week? See, here I am arguing against myself. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he goes, no, yes. No, 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 actually. And he goes, yes, every week. And I'm like, and, he, and I go, is everybody you pray for healed? And he's like, no. Why do you think that is? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that anybody knows. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, and it's not because, oh, you didn't have enough faith. I don't think we can re- be that reductionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's dangerous. However, faith plays a role. And faith manifests itself in the opportunities we create, we, we, we give for it to happen, for God to move in that way. Number two, where we put our faith, where we are putting the energy of our faith. And there he's saying people just don't have access to good medical care. And so there's no alternative. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. So, let me just say, lastly, I would want to be a doctor and I'm a firm believer in science mm-hmm. and I'm a firm believer in doctors and I'm a firm believer in applying every option we can get our hands on. Mm-hmm. And if we're healed by um, a, a medical practice, then that's a gift and a grace of God. Mm-hmm. I believe the knowledge invested in that doctor was a gift from God. And if God heals us supernaturally, that is just as much a, a, a gift of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it has to be supernatural for it to be from God. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, that was a great and a nuanced, if uh, albeit rambly answer And I I want to assure you, I don't think you actually argued against yourself because what I hear heard you saying was, well, it'll never be fully normative. But if by normative, we mean, well, hey, everybody like everybody gets healed Um, or this is just the dominant thing that we're seeing happen all the time. Um, You didn't argue against yourself because you nuanced it saying, well, hey, there's multiple things that impact the possibility of somebody going to be healed. And some of those is, you know, their own personal willingness. We see that when Jesus asks the um, paralytic, like, Hey, do you want to be healed? Cause some people don't really want to be healed. Um, that maybe the community lacks faith. Maybe there's different, uh, yet different medical infrastructure that creates different conditions, you know? Um, so you, you offered a, I'd say a pretty holistic or robust response by saying, we have to, in all circumstances, exercise humility by saying, well, we really don't know when or why somebody is healed and other people aren't. But as you said, we are called to seek healing. We do see God's desire to heal people be something that is pretty central to the ministry of Christ, but also consistent with the heart of God throughout scripture. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that there can also be, there can also be seasons. That's kind of what I heard you say too. There can be seasons where, Hey, that's a particular part of the work of the Holy spirit that God wants to do in and through specific communities. Um, but one thing I, I've also heard you saying here is that we should resist the temptation to be reductionistic when it comes to this sort of thing, reduce people's illness to sin you know, um, to, re- right. to reduce, uh, the lack of healing to a lack of faith. That's right. And in general, to me, that paints this complex picture of a God who longs to heal us, longs to invite us into that process, longs to use us as agents of, of healing, 
um, in his ministry to restore all things, but never wants things to become transactional. And um, yeah, I mean, I think transactional is actually probably the, the word that fits best because if we, it's not just a formula, do X, do Y, and then boom, you know, Jesus is healed or this person is healed. No, instead it requires a, a robust faith that's willing to be able to absorb disappointment, pain, uh, death, because that's what we see in Christ. That's right. I, I had a, fa- I had a couple reach out to me recently and they told me they, their, their son died and they had prayed for their son to be healed. They had people praying for their son to be healed and he died and uh, so much grief from that. And they were saying that the reminder that God does heal encouraged them because the temptation was to think, nope, God just doesn't do that. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's just incredible humility and faith to me that they could have that kind of perspective because I think that is the right perspective. I think it's easy to allow our disappointments to overly define who God is, who he is and what he can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And I think that takes tremendous faith to say my loved one wasn't healed, but God does still heal. And even though he didn't heal my loved one or he hasn't healed me, it's not because he doesn't love me. And there's a hiddenness in what is happening here, but I can entrust that to God and his infinite goodness because I can remember that this God that I don't understand has communicated in unequivocal terms his love to me through his death and suffering on the cross for me. Hmm. You mentioned a word when you were describing some of the different conditions that create opportunities for faith and for healing, and that's desperation. And that's a, that's something that we see in this passage too. I mean, both, Jarius and the woman woman are incredibly desperate. So is there, is there a, a deeper clue there for us? What role does desperation play in the cultivation of faith? Or um, is that something where if you don't feel desperate, you need to feel desperate? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Let's get our desperation on. Get yourself desperate. <laughs> Yeah, that would be, that would just be uh, tragic. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I'm curious, how have you seen, you were alluding to it earlier, uh, I think, or well, in some of the other podcasts, seasons of desperation in your life and the way that that's been a, f- a, a faith building season for you, a, fa- a mm. season of faith breaking into your life through the place of desperation. Uh, how has that happened in your life? Um, and if it hasn't, then be honest, it's only uh, happened through my vic- your victories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, I think the more, you know, so I, I, I partner with Jeff and Jen over here in the counseling space and I am privileged to be a facilitator for our men's skills, um, course. And, you know, genuinely like oftentimes I, I experienced a lot of transformation when I went through that that whole kind of course myself. Cause I was brought there. Why? Because I had hit a place of desperation. I mean, that was a combination of a spiritual crisis, a relational one and a mental health one. 
And uh, it has really exposed that my faith and my own coping mechanisms that I had developed, some of that was intellectualization and cynicism. Some, some of that was dependence on substances. You know, um, it, it wasn't enough. Those things were not working anymore. Those weren't protecting me from, from pain or from just coming to a sense of desperation. I was at a very desperate space. And in that, I was then invited by people to say, well, hey, you seem pretty desperate. You know, why don't you try X? I was willing to try whatever. I was I was willing to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to suspend my cynical disbelief. And OK, cool. I'm going to go to a prayer meeting. OK, cool. I'm going to go to this group, this group place. You know, I'm going to. All right. I'm going to open up and share vulnerably uh, because what do I have to lose? So. uh I, I love I love the skill space. So it kind of makes us a little more uninhibited, a little more willing to try to try something new. Yes. Than what we've done in the past. Totally. Well, I mean, in this in this chapter, I really identify with both Jarius and with the woman because for both of them, I mean, they've hit a a point where they are desperate. They recognize they need a power greater than themselves to help heal them because everything else that they have tried doesn't work. You know, she, she's gone through the medical establishment that hasn't helped. That hasn't cu- cured her. You know, he has got a daughter who's on death's door and it's like, dude, I'll try whatever. Let's go to the crazy Jewish guy, you know, uh, rabbi who's got a reputation for, for healing and for p- this weird power. Um, so yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I've heard it said, and I don't know where this quote comes from, but there's only really two things in life that are powerful enough to kind of break through our own fixation on ourself our own appetites, our own egos, our own fears, our own dreams. And that's either great pain or great love. And those, you can't really manufacture those. And you can't really control when they come along, but you can control how you respond to those moments. And Mm -hmm. that's where I see, hey, moments of desperation are these ripe moments that God orchestrates as where they can be seen through the, through the lens of faith as these opportunities where God's inviting us to experience and to encounter his love at a deeper level, to experience, to open up our own stories, our own lives to our, to others and to community and to him. And to ultimately discover that, Hey, we're not, we're not alone. We're not defective. We're not, that we're not hopeless. Um, we walk in relationship with a God who longs, to be for our healing good longs to, to come alongside of our wounds and our, our pains to lament alongside of us and to heal some of them so that we can be a healing to other people. That's beautiful. I think that's absolutely right. I think that desperation creates in us when I'm listening to you, it just reminds me it creates, I think it deepens a posture of humility. Mm. It, it affords us the opportunity to walk deeper into a place of humility that allows us to say, I don't have the solution. I don't have the answers. I think it also helps us, to freeze us from the ways in which we've depended on, on or whatever the things uh, to do what God alone mm-hmm. can do in our life. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to doctors. Like this woman goes to the doctor. So that's like an important thing. We should go to doctors. But then there's moments in our life where like my friend who's, who's walking with his daughter through cancer, they're going to doctors. Uh, but the doctor's inability to bring solutions to her problem. It's like, I don't know how else to put it, but it forced them to go deeper into drawing towards God. Mm. As he put it to me, than anything in his life had ever done. 
And he said, the strangest paradox is you're going through the most painful thing, but you're like, where's God? Where's his presence? Where's his power? And yet I have, when I look back on it, those moments, I never have felt closer to God than in those moments. Mm. And I think that's, well, yeah, I call that a paradox. All right. And uh, these moments have a power to, to push us towards God. I don't think that it's God pushing us, but they are moments that awaken us to the number one fact, we are not God. And if I'm not God, then who is, as you put it, the higher power. They're freeing. They are. Which is why I think the spiritual practice of fasting, it's a painful practice. Sometimes I feel sick when I fast. Like my body is like going through withdrawals from food. But that weakness, that felt weakness, as Paul put it, it allows God to do something in us that when we have everything going just our way, it just, it's hard to get to. So that desperation is sort of like a crucible, mm-hmm. right? That refines our hearts in such a unique way. Well, it's interesting to me, one theme we've seen emerge in our study of Mark thus far, and it's come up in our conversations in the podcast a number of times is the role of curiosity, and how curiosity is key to faith, to a life of faith, and that a faithful response in that we see in Scripture are people who respond to Jesus. Well, do they do you respond out of defensiveness or cynicism, or do you respond in curiosity? And weirdly, desperation is kind of a a dark twin to curiosity, because, mm-hmm. like you said, it contains within it this element of hu- humility. Hey, I'm at the end of my rope. Yeah, it's not. Curiosity more connotes this, oh, I'm, everything's kind of fine, but I'm interested, you know, what's what's going on over there? Yeah. You're not all in. (laughs) You're Uh not all in. You have ante up. Uh When you're going through something intense, it it causes you to ante up on something. When my friend was going through a terminal brain tumor, he started going to prayer meetings like he had never done before. Yeah. Uh, He he was a neuroscientist, a Christian. He didn't really, he's a Christian, but was pretty cynical about healing Mm -hmm. as a scientist. But when he had a terminal brain t- tumor and there was no hope from the medical side, it kind of was freeing for him. He's like, I, I just had, it simplified my options. Mm. I put everything, I, I put all my chips in on the hope that God would heal me through prayer. Mm. And it changed his life. It radically changed his life. Mm. But it was uh, that all in kind of experience that it created in him that he's like, I tell you right now, there's no way I would have gone to prayer meetings like that mm-hmm. if I didn't have a brain tumor. Uh, it's crazy. It, it, it's like, you know what it makes me think is not that God is like causing these. Our brains want to go, so what does God do is that use this stuff? No, no, no. God is flipping what was meant to destroy us. And that is that what redemption is, mm-hmm. what was meant to destroy us. God's like, no, 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 it's not going to destroy you. It's going to transform you. And it's like, so then do I have to go through that? It didn't have to be that way. But because sin entered the world, Mm -hmm. God is so daggum creative. He's like, all right, well, that's just going to, that was, that's the evil one's going to use that to destroy them. But Mm -hmm. no, I'm going to flip it and I'm going to use it. The cross is not going to be the end of my, of my reach into humanity, it's going to be my greatest victory. Mm-hmm. God's awesome. I, I love that you say that because in it, uh, not that I think many people listening to this would go here, but there is just that free, that caution. Hey, you don't have to create 
You don't have to manufacture desperation in your life. <laughs> don't yeah. misunderstand what we're saying. Um, God, yeah, God is going to use what the enemy intends for evil for good. If through the miracle of grace, through the miracle of faith. Yeah, we poked fun at it at the beginning, but yes, go, go, let's emphasize that. Yeah. <laughs> We're not saying you need to go make yourself if miserable. Anything, but the scriptures do want to give permission for us when there are places of desperation to come out and be honest. Yeah. Because so often in religious communities, desperation is a sign of, of being cursed by God, mm-hmm. un- unfavored by God of not being a righteous or a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Jesus does is no, it's the desperate people who are getting God. It's the sick mm-hmm. who get, are getting the doctor. Absolutely. That's what I mentioned. What a privilege it is to get to f- help facilitate men's skills courses, because particularly in our day and age and culture, you know, there isn't a healthy culture of masculinity that says, well, Hey, yeah, you know, come with your brokenness to the table and like, let's just be honest about where we're, you know, who we are and our shortcomings. What's more common is, is the machismo is the bravado is actually, or is just outright isolation. You know, men are lonely, don't have friends or community. And what I've seen time and time again in the skills ecosystem is there's a safe space of people who have something in common, which is a desperation. You know, it's, you usually don't get the casual, um, casually curious person in a skills course because it's a big commitment, you know, um, it's like 13 weeks and it's an hour and a half or two, um, once a week, you get people who are there because they're like, I, there is something that I don't have that I need. And man, the way that God shows up and transforms people's lives through the truth of his scripture and through a community of desperate people together seeking God is just profound. Yeah. That's well said, Joseph. Come on. That's why you're leading this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we could, I'm sure we could linger on desperation and cynicism and whatnot, but there's a couple of other things I wanted us to just reflect on briefly. And then we can, we can wrap up our conversation because we've been going for a little bit. But when I was rereading this after listening to your sermon, uh, one of the things that just really stood out to me uh, was Jesus's humanity. And, and I see it in, a number three different places. I'm sure there's more. I did, this is not a systematic list, but in uh, one, he he allows himself to be interrupted by the woman. That's just a really you. I think you called it what is Jesus ADD? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I love that. It just seems like a very human thing. Um, second. In verse 37, once he gets to Jairus's house, he encounters this scene that seems really foreign to us because we're so death averse, but there's professional mourners and wailers that are already there. Uh, There's a community of people who are well-practiced in what it means to grieve death, and they'd already kind of staked out their claim in a lot of ways. There's a little bit of a sense of territorialness, and it's it's a very public thing. Oftentimes when in our culture, when a a loved one is dying, we try our best to make it a very private thing. We, you know, it's, there's hospice care so people can die in their homes on, you know, unseen, or if it's in a hospital, we try and create privacy. But in this moment, I see uh, Jesus, the way he is ministering to this family, it'd be easy to uh, fixate on the fact that he raises the girl from the dead. You know, I mean, that's the crazy scandalous thing, but the human side of him where he, he clears those people out of the house and then he doesn't let anybody else come into the room except for the parents 
Peter, James, and John. And when I, when I read that again today, I just thought, wow, what a great pastor. What, what excellence, the best. Yeah. What incredible sensitivity. The best, my friend, no doubt. And then to top it off, like the way he says to the girl on the pastoral note, uh, give her some food to eat. (laughs) She must be hungry. She was just dead. The parents are just like, she's alive. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's hungry. Yeah. She's, she's, she's had a long day. (laughs) (laughs) Give her some food. I mean, just the, the pastoral practical uh, side of Jesus that again, he sees our humanity. He sees our physicality Mm -hmm. and it's almost like an honoring of it. Uh, It's not ignored in light of the spiritual which is why I wanted to touch on the healing to go back to it because the passage, I wanted to highlight how Jesus, what, how Jesus is demonstrating the gospel, the gospel that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he has risen and that we are forgiven of our sin and to be restored to being children of God, to reign with him forever. And the way that Jesus demonstrates it is by doing these things that interact with us at our human level. Yes. Jesus above all wants to heal us of our sin, but he comes doing it by offering us lollipops, something that just immediately tastes good and makes sense to us right away, but invites us into the deeper meaning of what his work was about. And that lollipop is the healing, the multiplication of bread that we're going to see Jesus doing, the calming of the storm, these sort of transitory, uh, ephemeral sort of acts of, of power right? Ephemeral because they're, they're limited in their scope and time. Mm. They're time bound. They're now 2000 years old. What good is a lollipop from 2000 years ago? No good. But if those moments speak to something even greater that has, that's continuing, that's even larger, then that's significant. And I just love how Jesus in the midst of all is caring for us at every level of who we are. That's his pastoral side that he's caring for us emotionally, spiritually, uh, physically. Yeah. Well said, my friend. And he's even willing to take on uh, the pastoral uh, role of just being sometimes public jester and being laughed at, you know, know, sometimes as a pastor, as a leader, just people are like, what you are just the weirdest person. They just look at you like you're just crazy. And he gets laughed at. Yes. I love that as well. And when I read it today, I immediately identified with it because it named It's for something me that a, goes back to when we were kids. When we, it's like, dude, when I was laughed at, I was like a kid or something yeah. in junior high. Wait, what? Well, Jesus was laughed at? Totally. <laughs> well, and it names, it names, I think, probably one of the biggest fears that people have. Like to go back to the fear of public speaking, what's the greatest, what's the greatest fear there? That you're going to get laughed off the stage. Yeah. What is, what's it? what are we risking when we talk about believing in faith healing or believing in exorcisms or believing in a bunch of the crazy stuff that happens in Mark? Well, it's, it's not cool in our modern society. And it's something that if, if t- you take this stuff seriously, oftentimes you get ridiculed or laughed at because yeah, it just seems, so Oh, that's so provincial or that's so medieval or that's so, you know, it's so like we have, we have science now we have space phones now. That's uh, right. You know, we don't, we don't have need for, this antiquated view of the world or religion. We have mental health assessments now. And it just reminds me that, Hey man, if I'm not willing to be laughed at for the sake of, of my faith and for the sake of, 
Christ, then, well, maybe I should be rethinking a few things, or maybe I'm just not being very bold. You know, maybe I'm letting the fear of man, the fear of being laughed at, uh, override my healthy fear of God. That's so good. I, you know what I think of, I know it doesn't sound crazy, but the first thing I think of is the Christians in the Colosseum being laughed at and ridiculed for, because of their vulnerability, their absolute helplessness and the apparent stupidity of their faith and the fact that they're now going to die for their ridiculous faith. And there they are. And there's Jesus surrounded by all these people in a type of Colosseum in the Colosseum on the floor, not with a lion, not with a bear, not with a leopard, but with death itself, death incarnate. And the courage, the boldness that must have instilled in those early Christians. And it's interesting because it's also where he's being laughed at and mocked, but it's also on the heels of his own mockery. When he shows up, he goes, the girl's not dead. She's just asleep. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just so cheeky. Just got style mocking death with like, she's not, death is just a nap. Now that I'm here. Now it's not true. Apart from Christ, death is reign supreme. 100% of human human beings will die. Everyone, no matter class, status, ethnicity, gender, no matter for all of human history, every human being is just going to die. Okay, except for maybe Enoch, Enoch and a and couple. Elijah. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <And Elijah. laughs> um, but Jesus is here, and everything has changed. And now, big bad death is nothing more than a nap, mm-hmm. a yawn, and it's not a belittling of the grief of death. It's putting death in its place, mm. subservient to Jesus Christ, and offering us a whole new paradigm shift, mm-hmm. and. I think for people who are facing death, it was a great encouragement to the early believers that look, yeah, you're going to die, but it's just a nap and you'll be raised up and it'll be as real and wonderful as when Jesus took that girl by the hand and brought her up. Mm. I think that's just wonderful that Jesus has made a, a mockery of the greatest bully the world has ever known. Well, Ryan, I think we should wrap things up. But before we do, I have one question, one nerdy question to ask you, <laughs> which is the 12, the 12 and the 12. So you, you can spend as little time or as, uh, as long of a time. Well, not as long. I, I will cut you off at some point. Well, I just had a good friend ask me, what's up with the 12 and 12, the 12 years of suffering and the girl being 12 and what's the relationship? And they're both daughters and, mm-hmm. oh, there's a lot of ink spilled by, th- by commentaries and theologians about the meaning of it, going back to like the fourth century. Really, I've seen it all. And uh, I won't bore you with all the different takes on it, but I thought what my friend said to me today on the phone was really, prof- was really caught my attention. She goes, she's just a simple observation that the woman had been, had had her condition for as long as the girl had been alive. Like, wow, that's a long time. Jeez, that just really struck me for this woman. For some reason, it gave me a sense of what she was going through. Um, And that Jesus was this father who has all the privilege to give his girl what she needs. And here's this woman. Who who does she have? Destitute woman. And that Jesus would pause in the midst of helping this father, this privileged male sort of religious leader, and say, hey, 
The daughters of my kingdom, they get, get taken care of, even if they don't have a father here on earth that has notoriety and wealth like this person. Now, maybe it's a reading bit into the text, but it, it reminded me of how Jesus pauses helping this really important person to help this anonymous woman. We don't get her name. You know what I mean? She's mm-hmm. anonymous. And I think that speaks to no matter how anonymous we feel, Jesus is going to be there for us. So anyways, that's, let's all stop there. The 12 and the 12. There's a lot of numerology about 12 represents in the Bible, God's authority and power. That's there. His, the, the foundation of his governmental um, rule on earth, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Ah, we could go on and on and on. But uh, I just like that it links the woman uh, to the daughter. Mm-hmm. Maybe one last thing. It just that when he said daughter to her, it was a, one more encouragement and reminder to Jairus that what I've done for this daughter, I'll do for yours. Mm. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Although I will admit I was just a tad bit shy. I was a tad bit disappointed. I thought that we were, you were about to take me on a full national treasure numerology hunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, that, I think that is a, I think it's a really beautiful reading, um, knitting those two women together and connecting it. Yeah. The use of the term daughter, connecting it back to the heart, the father heart of God that Jesus got to display in both cases. Yeah. Well, my friend, thanks again for another conversation. Thank you. The sun is setting on the day and our conversation. (laughs) Until next week, my friend. Yes, next week. I'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. For more information, about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.